letter that was written by the Apostle Paul to a church that he had planted. Uh, But this one's a little bit different because Paul went on a couple of missionary journeys and he planted lots of churches. But what we'll find is this is the church that Paul writes to about joy. And he writes to them from prison about the joy that they give him while he's in the midst of suffering. He's in a Roman prison. And he went to Rome initially to share the gospel there in basically the capital city of the Roman Empire. But when he gets there, he gets thrown in jail. And uh, not when he gets there, but he's basically incarcerated all the way to the point that he gets to Rome. And then when he gets there, he's on house arrest. He's not allowed to go out and open air share the gospel, which in his mind was probably what he preferred to do. He had gone to all these different cities He would go to the Jews, he would share the gospel, and then when they rejected him, typically, or when the majority of them would reject him, he would go to these other people called Gentiles, and he would share the gospel there, and then there would begin a a church plant like we have here. But he didn't get to do that in Rome. Instead, what he got to do was sit in a prison cell, and then down the road, they allowed him to be on house arrest. And during his time on house arrest, he was in jail. He was incarcerated. He wasn't able to go and be free like he had been for so many years. And so many people look at that and they go, well, how in the world is that God's will? But what we're going to find is that while Paul was in prison, he had joy and he prayed for the churches that he had planted. He wrote letters to the people to warn them and equip them and to, to encourage them to keep going. And he also wrote them to let them know that, hey, I'm doing okay in here. So if there's anything in this life that I think most people would like to have, it's joy. But I will say that even in the life of a believer, there are many things that will rob us of joy. Obviously, sin will rob us of joy. Um, But also, I wrote some things on my hand this morning as I was coming in. One of the things that can rob us of joy is circumstances. Now, joy is something that we can have despite our circumstances, But sometimes we get confused between happiness and joy. And what Paul's going to say in this letter is, instead of trying to seek happiness, which uh, a band that I listened to in the 90s called Our Lady Peace had an album called Happiness is Not a Fish That You Can Catch. I think there's a lot of truth to that. But what, what, what we need to know is that happiness is something that is circumstantial. It depends upon how our day's going, how our relationships are. And all these things that are never all quite lined up like we'd like them to be. And I believe that they will not be perfect or ideal until we get to heaven and we see Jesus face to face and we spend eternity with people that have been perfected because we're now in the presence of the Lord. But that being said, four things can rob us of joy that I can think of. Circumstances, people, relationships, right? Uh, Stuff, and worry. And even in this passage, in uh, chapter 4 of Philippians, he says in Philippians chapter 4, he says, Be anxious or worry not about things, but everything in prayer and supplications, make your requests made known to God, so that, actually, I always miss this part, he says, make your requests made known to God with thanksgiving. Is he talking about make your requests made known to God when you're getting ready to have thanksgiving? And eat a bunch of food? No, he's saying with thanksgiving, give thanks to the Lord and make requests on behalf of others and on behalf of yourself so that the peace of God, 
which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds until the day of Christ Jesus' return. And so if Paul writes that in this letter, he's writing this from a place of experiencing it. He's writing it from a place of knowing what it's like to experience hardship and yet have the Lord continually give him confidence and joy and peace even though things aren't working out the way he planned. And I'm type A and I'm an engineer by trade and one of the things that drives me nuts more than anything is when the ideal conditions that I envisioned aren't actually real. They don't actually happen. And I go, man, if things would have been X, Y, and Z, then it would have worked out perfect. But things are never like we expect them or desire them to be. So let's look at the Philippian church and see how it started. In the book of Acts, turn to chapter 16. Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, and Acts. And we studied through this, but it's been a while now, over a year, maybe even more. But in Acts chapter 16, we see Paul, and he arrives in Philippi in a region called Macedonia. Uh, I just remembered this. Would you put it to the next slide, please, Jesse? On this map, we have Asia Minor, which is modern-day Turkey, right, in this region. And since I'm short, I mean this one. Um, But Paul, on his second missionary journey, outbound, is these red dots, if you can tell. But basically, he starts at Antioch. He goes to Tarsus. He goes to Derbe, Lystra, Iconium. And that's where we find him in Acts chapter 16, verse 1. So let's read that. It says in Acts chapter 16, verse 1, Then he came to Derbe, probably saying that wrong, and Lystra, and behold, a certain disciple was there named Timothy. Now we know that Paul later writes two letters to Timothy. This is a man that he invests in. He says, the son of a certain Jewish woman who believed, but his father was a Greek, implying he was not a believer. Verse 2, he was well spoken of by the brethren who were at Lystra and Iconium. And Paul wanted to have him go on with him. And he took him and circumcised him because of the Jews who were in that region. We won't get into that today. But then he says this, he says, For they all knew that his father was Greek, and as they went through the cities, they delivered to them the decrees to keep, which were determined by the apostles and elders at Jerusalem. In the first missionary journey, there came a couple of questions. So when Paul went back to Antioch, and he went and met with the elders of the church that he was sent out by, they had to answer some of the questions that these churches that had been planted had. They couldn't just shoot an email or go to the church website and see where do we stand doctrinally on this. They had to send them back to the original church and say, hey, you know, we've never had this question come up. How are we going to deal with this? And the questions that they had, we won't get into today. But Paul was going out and he was answering those questions on the second missionary journey. He was going out and visiting them. He was kind of a circuit preacher, if you will. And he was going out and he was dealing with the problems that the churches had. So he needed some help, so he picked up Timothy along the way. And this young believer, he wanted to invest in him. And the best way to invest in people is to take them with you wherever you're already going to be going. Many of us can't just reroute our lives and say, well, I won't do X, Y, and Z. Uh, I'll invest in this person. God gives us things to do, and we have to do them. But discipleship is taking somebody with you while you do them, and along the way, sharing things with them that they may not have known before, or things that they're going to need to know later. And many times we want to get this ideal classroom type situation because that's the way we're taught. 
But most of life, skills and everything else, are learned along the way. In Deuteronomy 6, that's how the Hebrew children were supposed to be taught. He says, you're going to be set apart from all the other nations. You're going to worship one God. And he went on this list of how they were going to be different. He said, you shall talk about the Lord as you rise up in the morning, as you walk along the way, and as you lay down at night. The word of the Lord should ever be on your hearts. You should speak them to one another and remind them of what God's called us to be because we're different. And so Paul was doing that with Timothy. And so it says there in verse 4, as they went through the cities, they delivered these decrees to keep, which were determined by the apostles and the elders at Jerusalem. Remember, Paul's alive during the time of Peter, Paul, John, all the apostles, Andrew. And so the church, the churches were strengthened into the faith and increased in number daily. So, Verse 6, when they had gone through Phrygia and the region of Galatia, they were forbidden by the Holy Spirit to preach the word in Asia. So Paul's going, okay, Lord, today's yours. I'm going to where you want me to go today. I really want to go to Asia Minor. I really want to go to this region here in Pisidia and Cilicia and Lycia. Well, he's already been here, so he's heading west. And as he's heading west, kind of on this pilgrimage, he says, Lord, what do you want me to do today? And the Lord forbids him to go to this region right here, Colossae, Perga, Miletus, Ephesus. And we know from reading Ephesians, just this last book, that he went to Ephesus at some point. There was a church there. But in the meantime, God says, not yet. God says, yes, no, and not yet. And so he says, wait. And in the meantime, as he's waiting, sometimes we think when God says, wait, that means we just don't do anything. Right? We think, okay, God's told me to wait, so I, I can't do anything in the meantime. But what the Lord's telling us to do when he says to wait is he's saying, wait upon me. Spend time with me. Those who wait upon the Lord will renew their strength. And that's an opportunity to pray and say, okay, Lord, if this is what you don't want me to do, you obviously have something else that you do want me to do. And so God's kind of funneling this resource named Paul in a different direction. He's changing his heart. And as we pray, many times we're praying our will to be done. We're trying to convince God, my plan is the best, Lord. So why don't you just get on board with this thing? And what he's saying is, why don't you get on board with my plan? If I'm telling you no, that means I have a yes. And so when they had gone through Phrygia and the region of Galatia, they were forbidden by the Spirit to preach the word in Asia. Well, why would he do that? Verse 7, after they had come to Mysia, they tried to go into Bithynia, but the Spirit again did not permit them. So passing by Mysia, they came down to Troas. Notice his waiting doesn't cause him to stop moving. He keeps moving. He says, okay, Lord, here? Okay, Lord, here? No. Okay, what about here? No. He keeps asking. He keeps knocking. He wants to know, Lord, what do you have for me? And as he keeps knocking, it says, so passing by Mysia, they came down to Troas. And a vision appeared to Paul in the night. So Paul was able to sleep at night. Isn't that interesting? Many times we want answers from the Lord. We're so stressed out and anxious that we can't sleep. But it seems that Paul had a peace about him. And he was able to sleep in the night. At least that's my take on it. Maybe he was awake and the Lord gave him a vision. But it says, The Lord gave him a vision in night. A man of Macedonia stood and pleaded with him, saying, Come over to Macedonia and help us. Now, Macedonia is across the Aegean Sea there. We see the red dots kind of go off the screen on the projector there, and then they come down to uh, what is a region known as Macedonia. 
So this man from Macedonia is crying out, perhaps another believer or someone saying, hey, bring us, we need some help over here. And so verse 10 says, now after he had seen the vision, look at this, immediately we sought to go to Macedonia, concluding that the Lord had called us to preach the gospel to them. People who wait upon the Lord, who are truly praying God's will, when he finally gives it to them, they don't hesitate, they go. And many times we get in the paralysis of analysis because we want to make sure everything's measured out just right. But when the Lord says go, go. There's freedom in that. It takes faith, but there's freedom in that because wherever God calls you to go, he will provide and he will take care of you every time. Take it from somebody who waited too long many times and take it from somebody who has also learned from that and said, hey, okay, I'm going to take you up on this, Lord. I'm nervous, but I know you've never let me down. And when he never lets you down, you know it. So in verse 11, he says, Therefore, sailing from Troas, we ran a straight course to Samothrace, and the next day came to Neapolis, and from there to Philippi. So here we are. We've arrived. Here's all of the forestory. Here's all of the no that God's been giving him. But here's the yes. God guided him here, and he's got a reason for it. So it says there, it's the foremost city of that part of Macedonia, a colony. Now think about this. If you were going to share a good news with a region, but you only were one person, what would you do? You'd go to the biggest city in the area that has the most influence. And so Paul here is in a, an important city in the region, a colony, and it says there, and we were staying in that city for some days. And on the Sabbath day, we went out of the city to the riverside where prayer was customarily made, and we sat down and we spoke to the women who met there. In cities and colonies like this, for as far it, by this time they have synagogues for all the Jews to meet at. But if a city didn't have a certain number of men, there was the lowest quantity, if it had a certain number of men, then they would build a synagogue and they would have a meeting place. But if the place didn't have enough men, they wouldn't have one. And so a customary place for them to meet would be down by the river. And when they were meeting there, Paul, notice he goes to a different region and he goes to church. You know, many times we go on vacation, we go to these other places, and we go, well, I'm not going to my home. I don't have a church here, so I'm not going. But Paul didn't look at it like that. He wanted to find the people who were at least religious, if not actual believers. So he finds a place to go and worship, as was his custom, and while he's there, he finds the Lord's will for this particular place. It says, On the Sabbath day, we went out to the, of the city to the riverside where prayer was customarily made. We sat down and spoke to the women who met there. How sad. Paul arrives there. There are no men following the Lord. There's a bunch of ladies. Now, ladies, praise the Lord for godly ladies. I cannot tell you how many godly women have invested in me as a man. Women who have taken on the role of godly moms and have spoken things to me. Kay is one of them. Said hard right things to me that I needed to hear. But men, it's because men aren't being raised up to do so. And so men speak into our lives. And I've actually heard of surveys where they, they kind of pulled to see uh, how families do spiritually when the wife leads versus when the husband leads spiritually. And what they said is the percentage is befuddling. It's crazy. Wives who lead their families to church, many of them do well, but the percentage of pe young people who stay in church when their 
when their fathers are the leaders of the household spiritually, it's phenomenal, the difference. I wish I would have brought the numbers. It just kind of came to my mind. But the difference between it, there is still fruit on both cases. But when men lead the families and they make sure their kids know that Jesus is the most important, the success rate of kids continuing to walk with the Lord into college and then into their jobs, it's, it's incredibly different. It's, it's uh, exponential, the, the children that stay in church afterwards. Um, but that's just a side note. So it says that there were, there were women who met there, and a certain woman named Lydia heard us. She was a seller of purple from the city of Thyatira who worshiped God. Now, Thyatira is actually over here in this region that Paul was told not to go to. Interesting, right? So he wanted to go to that region, and what? Oh, there it is right up there by the word Asia. And so he was not permitted to go there by the Spirit of the Lord. Instead, what God wanted to do was send Paul across the Aegean Sea to meet with someone who would ultimately end up being a seed that would go back to Thyatira. She, many believe she was on a business trip, and she was selling her purple goods. And when she would come back, she would come back with the knowledge, the saving knowledge of Jesus Christ as her Savior. And so she comes back to Thyatira. She shares her faith there. Which makes me think of Mark chapter 5, verse 6 through 20. We won't go there for time's sake, but basically the story goes that after the disciples had gotten in a boat with Jesus and crossed the Sea of Galilee, they go to a city on the other side, and when they get there, they find a man who is among the tombs. He's demon-possessed. Everyone knows who he is. He's wailing and cutting himself, and he's being tormented by these demons. He has a legion of demons. And so when Jesus gets there, the demons within this man cry out and they say, Lord Jesus, what you have you to do with us? And they bow down and they worship him. And interestingly enough, Jesus calls these demons out of this man and sends them into a herd of swine and the swine all run into the sea. And, uh, and so after this man is clothed and in his right mind, he's sitting there. And Jesus gets ready to get back in the boat and cross back over the sea. That's all he came for, was just to speak to this one man. One of the other accounts says that there were two demon-possessed men. But the point is, is that when he spoke to this man, he, he cast the demon out of this man. This man was forever changed because of his personal interaction with Jesus. When Jesus went to leave, the man wanted to go with him. And the Lord said, no, I don't want you to come with me. I want you to stay here as a testimony to the power of God. I want you to be the seed of the gospel because God sets people free from the bondage of sin. And so after that, the man stayed there and every, he didn't have to say anything. He was a witness of the power of God just due to the fact that he was clothed because he was naked before that. And number two, because he was in his right mind. He was of sound mind. That, the word there in the passage actually means that he was made whole in his mind. And so Jesus made this impact on this man, left him in this region as a witness. In this case, he sends Paul to another land to share the gospel with this woman. And then she comes back to Thyatira. But I'm getting ahead of myself. He says, the Lord, um, in verse 14, a certain woman named Lydia heard us. She was a seller of purple from the city of Thyatira who worshiped God. And I underline this in my Bible because it's important. And it says, the Lord opened her heart to heed the things spoken by Paul. She didn't just hear what he said, but she believed it. 
She didn't just hear the words, but she took hold of them and said, I believe these things. We can talk to people until we are out of breath, till we are hoarse, and we can try to preach to them, but unless the Lord opens their heart to receive what we have to say, it will make, make no impact. You ever heard the phrase, a man convinced against his will is of the same opinion still? I think that speaks to our, our area. I'm that way. How can I expect anyone that doesn't know the Lord to be pliable? But what the Lord says through this passage is that it, Paul spoke the words, but God opened the heart. And so when we share with people, we need to be praying always. Verse 15, And when she and her household were baptized, she begged us, saying, If you have judged me to be faithful to the Lord, come to my house and stay. So she persuaded us. And so he goes back to their home, is able to eat some food and get some hospitality. And verse 16 says, Now it happened as we went to prayer. He's continued to stay in this region. There, a few days later, they go to prayer. Uh, there's a certain slave girl possessed with the spirit of divination who met us, who brought her masters much profit by telling fortunes. So this is like a witchcraft. These demons give her insight into seems the future, and she's able to tell the future of these people. But it's a de- demonic, satanic thing. She's possessed. But because of her possession, she's also a slave that gains these people money. She's owned. She's a human being that's owned. And so it says there, This girl followed Paul and us and cried out, saying, These men are the servants of the Most High God, who proclaim to us the way of salvation. And this she did for many days. So I've always pictured that basically what happened, as I was reading this the other night, I was corrected, but I've always pictured that this happened, and Paul's walking along the street. She goes, hey, these are the servants of the Most High God. And Paul's like, we don't need uh, publicity from demons, all right? So he turns around and goes, hey, you're annoying me. Lord, take this demon out of this woman. But that's not the case, because notice what verse 18 says. She did this for many days. He was patient. He, He didn't just wail her with casting out the demon. He waited for the Lord to work. Perhaps he was praying for her at night. We don't know, but it seems like he had a little bit of patience here. We always picture Paul as this hard-driving guy that didn't care about anybody, but just doing the Lord's will, and I don't care who I got to run over. But it seems to me that he actually practiced some patience here. But Paul, greatly annoyed, he was still annoyed. He was, he was bothered by this. He turned and he said to the Spirit, I command you in the name of Jesus Christ to come out of her. And he came out that very hour. So this is a good thing, right? But just like when Jesus did good things, people got upset because it affected them financially. In the same way, when Paul does this good thing, it upsets the people that were gaining profit from this woman's slavery. And so it says they brought them to the magistrates. And uh, actually it says, but Paul, uh, verse 19, sorry. But when her master saw that their hope of profit was gone, They seized Paul and Silas, and they dragged them into the marketplace to the authorities. They brought them before the court, and they brought them to the magistrates and said, These men, being Jews, exceedingly trouble our city. They teach customs which are not lawful for us, being Romans, to receive or observe. And then the multitude rose up together against Paul and Silas, and the magistrates tore off their clothes. 
Now, that's odd for us because we're like, what, why, why would they tear off their clothes? That's the weirdest response ever to someone being pulled before a court. Well, they're, 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 they're mad. And in the Middle East, when you get mad, you don't just say, I'm ticked off, and then make a Facebook post. You get physically, emotionally charged, and they would tear their clothes in sign of aggravation and mourning many times. They're very emotional people. They, they would throw a fit. And so what happened is they, they tore their clothes and showing that how aggravated they were and commanded them to be beaten with rods. And when they had laid many stripes on them, they threw them into prison, commanding the jailer to keep them securely. Having received such a charge, he put them into the inner prison and fastened their feet in the stock. So they didn't just go to jail. They went to like the most inside part of the jail so they couldn't escape. Maybe they'd heard some previous stories about the apostles of God getting locked up who were able to just miraculously get out. I don't know. But because of what Paul and Silas had done, they threw them in jail. But then what I want to point out is that Paul and Silas end up being this amazing witness and they have joy still. The first apostles that were arrested in the book of Acts, when they were put in jail and then when they were set free, they just jumped for joy. They're like, hey, we got to suffer for Jesus. Now, how many of us have that opportunity and actually rejoice to be able to suffer for the sake of Jesus? Paul didn't look at himself as a prisoner of Rome. He looked at himself as a prisoner of Jesus Christ. If I'm in jail, it's because at the very least, God has allowed it in order to bring glory to his name. Romans chapter 8, verse 28 says, um, I'll turn there so I don't misquote it. Apparently, I'm doing that a lot lately. In Romans chapter 8, verse 28, Paul writes something. He says, we know, here's something we know, that all things work together for good to those who love God, to those who are the called according to His purpose. God has a purpose for suffering. He has a purpose for it. And I believe it's in James, or nope, it's in 1 Peter. Thank you, Lord. 1 Peter um, chapter chapter 1, verse 6, he says, In this you greatly rejoice, though now for a little while, if need be, you have been grieved by various trials. Here's the reason, that the genuineness of your faith, being much more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to praise, honor, and glory at the revelation of Jesus Christ. He says, in this you greatly rejoice, knowing, though now for a little while, if need be, you've been grieved by trials. Did you know that God needs trials to happen in our lives at times? And it's for the purpose of perfecting, or the word means, maturing our faith. It's like taking precious metals, and instead of just like putting them onto a piece of jewelry, heating them up to the point where all the impurities in those metals kind of come to the top and they pull the dross off. And then that perfected metal is like what God wants to produce in our faith. Pure, sincere trust in the Lord. So back in Acts, we see this. And we see the beginnings of this church. We see this group of people that are witnessing miracles of the Lord. And Paul and Silas are these amazing witnesses according to the power of God. 
when they're thrown in jail, they don't start complaining and getting a petition together and getting all these people to come and defend them. They know that the Lord is their defense. And if he wanted to keep them out of jail, he would have. God must have a purpose in this. And so at midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and they were singing hymns to God. How many times do you think that other prisoners had been sitting in there and they hear new guys come in and they're like singing praises to God? No, they probably came in going, I'm getting out of this place tomorrow. I'm calling my lawyer. That wasn't fair. If anybody could have said this isn't fair, it would have been Paul and Silas. They were in jail for setting a woman free from demon possession. They were in jail for messing up somebody's economy. But they were singing praises knowing that they had done what God gave them to do. Verse 26, suddenly there was a great earthquake so that the foundations of the prison were shaken. And immediately all the doors were opened and everyone's chains were loosed. Praise leads to victory. Let me repeat that. Praise always leads to victory. Anytime that the nation of Israel, the 12 tribes, that God prescribed the way they were to set up their camp every time they stopped. They had the tabernacle of the Lord in the middle. I'm going to draw it up here, kind of. The tabernacle of the Lord in the middle. They had three tribes here, three tribes here, three tribes here, and three tribes here. And they would take off in a specific order from the Lord. And the first tribe to go out was the tribe of Judah. Judah means praise. And anytime they would go out to battle, they would send out Judah first because praise always leads to victory. So there they are. They're praising the Lord. And as they're praising the Lord, it shakes the foundations of the prison. And immediately all the doors were opened and everyone's chains were loosed. Praise also sets us free from being thinking that we're victims of our situations. That's just a devotional thought, but many times because we're not content in what God has given us and we already have, we are looking in other directions trying to find something else that will fulfill us. And in the meantime, Paul wrote to Timothy, godliness with contentment with where we're at or what we have or who we're with is great gain. Contentment is great gain. Jesse, will you give me the next slide? So, as we begin in Philippians, and just a little bit of time we have left, I want to read uh, the beginning of this chapter. Paul and Timothy, bondservants of Jesus Christ, to all the saints in Christ Jesus who are in Philippi with the bishops and deacons, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. So a typical Paul greeting. He tells you who's writing, Paul and Timothy, and he tells you who they are. He says, bond servants of Jesus Christ. And we talked about this a little bit in Ephesians, but it's written from Paul and Timothy, and he calls himself a bond servant of Jesus. That means he's a free will slave. He's been captured by the love and the care of the Lord, and he, he's not serving the Lord because he has to. He's serving the Lord because he gets to. He wants to. He has it way better off than he ever did when he was living for himself. And so as he's had it way better off, he says, Lord, I'm yours. I'm bonding myself to you. Free will slave. I have a choice, and I'd rather be your slave than a slave to my own self. And then he says that he's writing to all the saints in Christ Jesus who are in Philippi. The letter is written to all of the saints, 
who are in Christ Jesus. That was a key phrase in the book of Ephesians. Paul wrote this letter at the same time that he was imprisoned and wrote the letter to the Ephesian church. So there's themes throughout, but he writes it to the saints who are in Christ Jesus. That's where you are located. If you are a believer in Jesus Christ, your location is not Ironton. It's not Arcadia Valley or Arcadia. It's not Pilot Knob. It's not Farmington. Your location of residence is in Christ. That is the safest place you can ever live. But he also says who currently are in Philippi. Your home is not here. Your home is not in this place. Your destination, you are a citizen of heaven, temporarily living in this world. We have a new citizenship, and yet at the same time, we have a dual citizenship. But what Paul says is, I'm writing to all the saints. Do you consider yourself a saint? You are a saint. The Bible says it over and over again. You are a saint. You don't have to be in stained glass to be a saint. Now, if you don't consider yourself a saint, consider what makes you think that you might be someone could be a saint. What what are the qualifications to be a saint? Now, in the Catholic Church, kind of their definition is that um, you wrote a book or you had uh, good works or miracles that have happened, and you've been dead for over a hundred years. But Paul's writing to people. He's not writing to dead people. He says, to all the saints who are in Philippi. So if he's writing a letter to dead people, then what's the point? Why would we even read it? He's writing to living, breathing people. We are not qualified to be saints because of what we have done, accomplished, or passed on to. We are called saints because Jesus paid it all for our sins. All to him we owe. Sin had left a crimson stain. He's made us white as snow. In his sight, practically, excuse me, positionally, we are all that we will ever be because of what Jesus has done. Our works prove who we trust, but they don't save us. Jesus did it all. So if that's the case, Paul can write to any Christian believer and say, to the saints. Now, practically, there's some things we need to work out, right? If we're saints of God, we need to live like it. So, he says, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. So, I'm just going to outline this real quick. In this passage, verse 3 through 11, we have three different sections. Section 1 is verse 3 and 3 through 5, which is the section about redemption. God is working, he's worked for us. He's working in us, and he wants to work through us. And that's what Paul's going to talk about. Redemption is the work that God did for us. Sanctification is the work that God is continuing to do in us. And service is the work that God desires and wants to do through us. And so in verse 3, he says, I thank my God upon every remembrance of you. Where is his thankfulness directed? He's thanking God. He says, I thank God upon every remembrance of you, always in every prayer of mine, making request for you all with joy for your fellowship in the gospel from the first day until now. We're going to find out that the Philippian church was one of the poorest churches that Paul planted. But they were one of the only churches that decided to invest in him and provide finances so he could go and plant more churches. 
We studied Corinthians, and they were one of the most affluent churches, and they said, yeah, we're going to help you. And over and over, Paul was like, well, then do it. You know, and they said, we're going to give an offering for the Jerusalem church that's being persecuted. And Paul just said, then what's in your heart, go ahead and do it. Don't just talk about it. And then he gives the Philippian church as an example. He says, they don't have anything, but they are always willing to give to those who don't have because they realize how much God has given them through the gospel. He says, I give thanks always in every prayer of mine, making requests for you all with joy. He prays for them. Now, interesting enough, Paul's in prison, but his thoughts are always towards others. We're going to talk about joy in this book, but I want to give you an acronym to memorize. Joy. Jesus first, others second, yourself last. That's the key to joy. Jesus first, others second, and yourself last. If you get it backwards, you'll never have joy. You won't. Promise, I, 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 I promise you, I've tried it. So he says, I give thanks for you, not only for you, but your fellowship in the gospel from the first day until now, being confident of this very thing. This is what Paul is confident about. This is what gives him joy. Remember, Paul doesn't get to stay with the church and teach them every week, see them grow. He has to do it all by faith. He's left people there to teach, but now he's gone on in other places. Now he's in jail. He can't even go visit them, visit them to see how they're doing, but he has joy for them because of this reason. He's confident that he who has begun a good work in you will be faithful to complete it until the day of Jesus Christ. Jesus is the one that planted the seed of the gospel there. Jesus is going to be the one to water it. Jesus is going to be the one to bring it to the point where it produces fruit. Paul is confident, not in his ability to share the gospel, not in his ability to disciple people. He's confident of the fact that Jesus is the one that started it, and he's going to be the one to complete it. So then he says, until the day that Jesus returns, just as it is right for me to think of this, uh, excuse me, just as it is right for me to think this of you all, because I have you in my heart. Paul has him in his thoughts but he also has them in his heart. He's knit together with them. Inasmuch as both in my chains and in the defense and the confirmation of the gospel, you all are partakers with me of this grace. Paul's basically going to Rome to make a defense for the gospel. And the way that he handles himself before these trials and everything that goes on will affect the rest of the empire and how they deal with other believers. And so Paul says, I'm here in chains representing you. We think of a representative, we think of somebody that's an elected official that goes up there on their own free will, hears the people and goes and represents them. Paul gets to represent them in chains, in prison. But he doesn't look at it as an, opportu as an opportunity lost. He looks at it as, a, as an opportunity to gain. He says in verse 8, For God is my witness how greatly I long for you with the affection of Jesus Christ. He's like the good shepherd who loves the sheep. He's willing to lay his life down for the good of the sheep. He longs for them with affection. And then verse 9. I wrote a bunch of different things in here. Verse 6, Thankfulness comes from recognizing God's handiwork and his ability to complete it. And then verse 7, Paul's thankfulness also comes from being a recipient of God's grace himself. Verse 7, he has said that. He says, I'm also a partaker. 
He didn't look at himself as better than the rest of the Christians because he was a missionary or because he was a pastor or because he was a man who was fulfilling his calling. He said, I'm a partaker of this same grace that you've received. We're on the same playing field here. So he says, this I pray that your love may abound still more and more. So next week we'll talk about what he prays for them. But before we uh, get finished here, uh, we want to do communion this morning, so I want to cut it short. So let's, uh, let's pray. Father, thank you for the opportunity to study this letter. Thank you for Paul's joy. Thank you that it wasn't based on the fact that he had the right uh, place to live or uh, the perfect job or the perfect family or even all the stuff that he's ever wanted to obtain. Thank you that Paul's joy and the source of it came from a single-mindedness that he belonged to Christ and that he lived to serve him. Father, we thank you for the opportunity to take of your bread and your cup this morning. We pray, Lord, minister to our hearts as we think on you and all that you've done. Give us joy. In Jesus' name, amen.